If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Mr. Rogers will hand one out to you. Um, And then open it up, please, to the Gospel of Genesis, second to the last chapter. Look at how close we're getting. That's chapter 49, for those of you who are scrolling in your apps. Wow, that is good tea. I just want you to know that. Pray with me as we dig into this text. Lord God, we, um, we come to you all in, in desperation, in need. Now, granted, we may think that our needs are different, and perhaps from the surface they may appear to be. Some looking for comfort, some looking for direction, some looking for peace, some looking for inspiration, some uh, what, looking for power, whatever the case is, Lord, but we know in the end of it all, what we all need is you. So our need is universal, even if the symptoms appear or the surface appears to be varied. And we are aware today that, that without you being here, all we get is words, and we don't want that. We really want to fellowship with you, to be drawn to you, And Lord, for the several hours of travel time, more than a day represented by those who have come today, we thank you. And Lord, I pray you would reward them for their tenacity on this day that's hot and then rainy and then cold and then hot and then rainy, and that's just in five minutes. Lord, I just pray that you would rain down upon us consistently, your Holy Spirit. And Lord, in that as your Holy Spirit, first and foremost, is the catalyst for intimacy between us and you. May he do exactly that. May we have nothing in our heart that would grieve him or you. And now, Lord, may your scripture burst open and come alive for us. And Lord, I just pray that where we need to hear you speak, you would speak today. So get me out of your way, immerse me, fill me to overflowing with your spirit, and then minister to and through me to each person here as we commit this time to you. Let it be fun, great time in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today is that would any please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. Let the Bible be your authority for which you hold and test all things. Today is the first Sunday of the month, which is Communion Sunday. And what that means in its simplest sense is that we all get to have this moment of introspection where we get quiet before the Lord and say, all right, Lord, am I right with you? Is everything right? We're going to go to the table and testify of Jesus' death and his resurrection as we've been promised. Whenever we do this, we testify of his death till he comes. So I want you to know what's on the other end of this so that as we go from A to B, May God be working in all of our hearts that we could come to the table of the Lord joyfully and wholeheartedly. If the Lord chooses to tarry, this will happen to every one of us more than likely to some degree. 
there is a place where ultimately you kind of know you come to grips with death. And you're going to face death head on. Now, of all the statistics, one of the easiest statistics, because, you know, it's sort of like everyone says, like five out of every four people have some kind of crazy statistic. Well, uh, one thing I can say confidently, and that is five out of every five people, well, they die. And it tells us it is appointed on demand to die once and then to judgment. It doesn't say you get 15 chances or you're going to be reincarnated as a bug if you're nasty. It says you're going to stand before God. Now, there are times in Scripture where we'll find, for instance, with Hezekiah, where he's been challenged, put your house in order, you're going to die. Some will have the benefit of some degree to know the season of their death. But even in the season, God may choose to heal you, and then you have to figure out what you're going to do now, now that you've sort of spent all your money on your credit cards. And uh, thinking you didn't have to pay it because you were going to die anyways. You know, there, there is that point where every breath you have is held in God's hands. Every breath. And even if you feel like you've counted them all, he knows. Now, when that time comes, some, some don't have that. We're aware of that. Some people woke up this morning and they just thought it was going to be another day and they're not going to go to sleep the way that they came up this morning. As a matter of fact, I'm told every 46 seconds, I believe, in um, this side of the planet, every 46 seconds, someone will pass away. Now, with all of that said... What would you do if you actually knew you were at the end of your season? You've got a few days left. As a matter of fact, this chapter will read Jacob and Jacob. It begins with Jacob and it ends with Jacob. But Jacob's going to die at the end of this chapter. And sort of like he kind of knows it and he's got one last shot. If you had one last shot, what would you change? I mean, if you were going to leave a legacy, that was it. And you knew this was it. You could call whatever audience you would call. You could bring them all before you. Because some will be assembled at your funeral, and that will be it. They won't have that opportunity to hear from you what you wish you could say. But if you could, if you could call your audience, what would you say? And, what, and who would you call? Well, well, what we have here is, and we'll find through Scripture, there will be several men. And it always seems like when there is that, is that gathering of their children, there's this regret. This is regret all over Jacob for some of the things he's going to talk to. And he's going to call his boys together. I think of David, when David calls his boys together and the regret that he has in his heart, although he will say he's innocent of several of the things that he could have done wrong, he still has the regret of the things he did do wrong. Those moments where he just knew, okay, it would have been so much nicer had that not happened. Now, Jacob is a man who had all of his children while still Jacob. Jacob will become Israel. And so some of you have that situation. Some of you were in that situation. Your parents got saved somewhere in your, your walk, in your, in your childhood. And of course, if that be the case, more than likely the older ones tend to have been more influenced by the Jacob, while the younger ones may have seen more of the Israel, if that makes sense. We're not going to necessarily see that here. But what we're going to see is that Jacob now has called his boys together and he's going to speak to them. By the way, convinced he's Israel at that moment. And again, there are times, and I know one quick lesson I can learn from this, is I can learn that there are times where I really feel like I'm walking in the spirit, but I'm actually being rather fleshly. And you can't be fleshly in the spirit. They really don't cohabit. 
And he'll say, listen to Israel, children, even though really there's a whole lot of Jacob. Although we do know that the Holy Spirit is leading in a lot of this still because a lot of what he speaks is prophetic. Now, we can handle this in a very prophetic or a very technical way and kind of go, let's go and approach this and this and this and this and this in the future. But by the time we're done, your brains will be oozing out of your ears. And, and, and there is, it's great, great information. And we want to become students of the word of God. But we want to make sure that it never gets to be an island of information where it doesn't really apply to the life that we have at the moment. Or what will happen is the best we'll have with it is something that will be puffed up and used on someone else instead of really use it to apply to our own lives. And that's really not the case, certainly not the case for Jacob. And, and there is one quick immediate lesson we can learn from this, and that is that someday if this is going to be us, how do we want to live from now till then so that if we were to call whoever is in our circle of influence together, that it would be people that we could speak with no regret and say, I pray that you've seen more Israel than Jacob. And that there'll be a day when God will wipe out the memory of the rest. Glory to God for that. Now, please understand, for what it's worth, over 20 different times the tribes will be listed, and almost always in a different order to some degree. Um, and, of course, in this as well, there'll be some interesting points about that. There is a series of blessings or curses, to be honest, in this particular text. And then in Deuteronomy 33, and I challenge you just to write down these texts so you can sort of search them on your own. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses does the same thing right before he's about to die, calls the tribes together and speaks to them. In the book of Numbers, there will be, and you can probably guess why it's called that, twice the census is given. And what happens when you take a census? You collect numbers. And thus the book is called Numbers. And so there's a census in chapter 1, there's a census in chapter 26, and you'll see which tribes grow and which tribes get increasingly small. In the book of Joshua, and I, and I had a map to give you, but I'm sorry we don't today, but if you're kind of one of those people that has the Bible with all of those cute little maps in the end, you'll see one in regards to the, the book of Joshua where the different tribes settle and how important that is for a lot of this. So for instance, very important, the Simeon never gets land to themselves. They'll actually share the land with Judah. Menasha, Reuben, for instance, yeah, they'll actually have, um, tr- they'll have land, well, half tribe of Menasha, will have actually land on the wrong side of the Jordan from what God had originally promised. So they're actually not where they're supposed to be, and that will play into this. Um, but ultimately, one other thing, and that's the book of Revelation chapter 7, because in Revelation chapter 7, God seals 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And by the way, I believe it's Jewish people because God really took special liberty to make sure that I knew that it was even tribe by tribe, 12,000. The interesting thing is, is that one of those tribes is missing. Interesting because there'll be one tribe missing as well, by the way, in the Deuteronomy text. Well, with all of that said, what do you say we dig into it? Verse 1, it says, Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Now, for what it's worth, the last days, this is the first mention of that term. We'll see it again in Acts, Timothy, or well, 2 Timothy 3, 1, Hebrews 1, 2, and 5, 3, and then in 2 Peter 3, 3. In all of these particular cases, of course, speaking about that time that, by the way, we're in. And, and with that, he says here, by the way, gather together, and then it says in verse 2, gather in here, you sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. So what you have now is you have... Twelve boys, or actually I would say 14 because you have Joseph's boys as well, it appears. But either way, at least the 12 of Jacob's boys, that Israel's boys, that have gathered around his bed. And they're all sort of, imagine if you will, here's Jacob and he's sitting up, leaning on his staff. And he's looking at his boys and he's going to speak to each one of them as a father would, bequeathing his goods or you know that kind of thing. Today we have a will. I get the idea this is sort of him 
bequeathing the will. Now, I want to remind you, Jacob's blessings were twofold. And Jacob would know the difference between the birthright and the blessing because Jacob fought for both of them. If you remember all the way back in Jacob's past, it was Jacob, by the way, who deceives his father dressing like his brother so that he could get the blessing. But before that, it was through a bowl of stew that he connived to get the birthright. Now, the birthright gives you authority and responsibility. In essence, is the person who has the responsibility of being second in command. Dad were to pass away, the family then is under your responsibility. That's the birthright responsibility in regards to that in the firstborn. The blessing, on the other hand, is in regards to the goods. So if you think about it, one is sort of more responsibility, and really one is more goods. And so wanting the blessing, by the way, and, and for Jacob, by the way, he's not looking at just getting goods like household items. Oh, I get the toaster, you get the microwave. But the blessings that God has bestowed upon him that are going to be handed down too. And that's going to be key. Now, please understand why I say those two things. is because in life, and here's just a general lesson, there will always be this thing where God intended to have this equilibrium between responsibility and authority. One without the other is a bad idea. Now, there are a lot of people, perhaps, that have authority with no responsibility, and that makes them a tyrant. There are others who have responsibility without authority, and that makes them a slave. But the idea of somebody that actually says, here's what I'm responsible for, and here's the authority I have to accomplish that task. God is very careful to give you both. He's given us authority, but our authority is not to flaunt authority. Our authority is so that we can accomplish the mission God has placed in our lives, and that's responsibility. Now, with that in mind, he's gathered these boys together, and now we see that there's this sort of handing off of both. Jacob has the idea, remember, he's been promised all of the land of Israel, so we can dole out that, but he also has the, the spiritual heritage from which the Messiah is going to come, so he has a responsibility of doling out that as well. So the boys have gathered together, but I want you to think about what it would be like as these boys gather together. I mean, he can look, and he's, you've got one boy who slept with one of your wives, You've got another boy, uh, two other boys, who have murdered an entire village of people. Not just your first three. You have a fourth one whose sons were so evil, God just killed them. We don't even read how. God doesn't have to take special mention of it. And then this guy winds up sleeping with his daughter-in-law, thinking she's a prostitute. That's boy number four. You have the sons of these concubines, these wives, that, by the way, are terrible shepherds because we know that Joseph gave a bad report way back in the beginning of his life when he was 17. That was the beginning of that. So you have bad shepherds for that. You have other brothers who have conspired together to kill Joseph or sell him away. And that's what he's looking at here in his legacy. In other words, what he's looking at is the offspray of a cloud of Jacob. And with that, the shower that has come down has been rather ugly. Now, for what it's worth in Scripture, uh, God promises us in Second, or for, I'm sorry, First Timothy five twenty four. It tells us, by the way, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. However, there are some that follow later. In other words, you think someone's getting away with it. Maybe you're one of those kind of people that you just get nailed for everything. You know, it's like you were going to try to get away with it, and boom, man, the first time you tried it. I mean, you try to steal a stick of gum. And the next thing you know, the police were called. you got another guy, and it seems like he's selling flat-screen TVs that aren't his. And you're like, how does that work? And you think that is everything. And look at it. And God says, listen again in 1 Timothy, some men's sins are clearly evident, 
preceding them to judgment. In other words, they're going to get nailed ahead of time. There are others, they're going to get it later. Or might I just say it this way from Numbers 32, 23, where it says, look at, don't be deceived. Your sin will find you out. And what you'll find is there are some of these guys, for instance, this guy who actually went with his stepmother. We read that Jacob knew it, but he never addressed it. Oh, he's going to get it now. So here you are. Think of you're the boys gathered at the, the footstool or gathered at the foot of the bed of Jacob. And Jacob begins to speak to him now. Verse three, Reuben, the first of the twelve. You're my firstborn. Oh, by the way, let me just say this is important. And you're like, we're not, are we going to get through all this? Well, we'll see. Each of the member has a specific name, and that name is Hebrew, which means it's sort of like the Indians in America, where when they name their, their, their children, they name them something you could recognize. It isn't like, oh, Elaine, what does that mean? Oh, Jeffrey, what does that mean? You know, and we just go, oh, my name's Jeff, you know. Uh, but, but there it's like, you know, you know, it's like chief running nose. Okay, well, we kind of get an idea what you're like. I mean, the Indians, they name their, self, their children something that's like, you know, runs around with no clothing. Okay, we get the idea. Don't invite that one to the party. You know, on the other side of that, that's the idea in, in Hebrew where they're naming their children something. For instance, the first child they name means see a son. And by the, way, the reason I say that is I'll list all of those because each one of them is going to have a name that he's going to play off of. The first one, when see, see a son, well, look, you're my firstborn. You're my firstborn what? You're my firstborn son. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity and the excellency of power. Now, doesn't that sound like a good workup to something good? Remember, this is the guy who went with his stepmother. Ah, oh, look at you. You're my firstborn, my might, my beginning of my strength, excellence of dignity, excellency of power. And I imagine that at that point, Reuben is kind of propping himself up. And he goes, unstable as water you are. And I'd say that the mood just changed radically. Now, what does that mean, unstable as water? Well, there's two basic points to it. I mean, one is, is that water is not something, unless it's frozen, you really kind of can trust where the surface is going to be. But the other, especially living in an agrarian culture like this, is it's just unpredictable and extremely disappointing. The clouds come now for us. Now, we live in a great place for this because it just seems like we should be building boats and collecting animals, and they still tell us we're in a drought. How does that work? And they say, it's the wrong rain. How does that work? Can't you just make collect it somewhere and make it the right rain? Now, the only enough that just shows my ignorance. But the reason I say that is, is that there are times when you live, you live off the land. It's like, look at you expect the rain and it doesn't come, and then you don't expect the rain and it comes torrentially. And you look and go, and, and that's the idea of this guy. It's like, look at you had so much promise, but you never really delivered. As a matter of fact, you are a big... And, and, and if I could just say in, in, in a simplest sense, if he were saying, he's like, look, you're a big disappointment. And I don't want my dad in heaven to be able to say such a statement. But he could. Because within me is a bit of Reuben, and more than likely there is in you too. The part that has a lot of promise. But you know what the thing is? Reuben traded in all of that promise for a moment of pleasure. Isn't that sad? I mean, he had all of this promise. And he's like, yeah, but this, the instant, this right here. You're unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Now, when he says he went up to my couch, who do you think he's speaking to? I tend to think he's speaking to the other 11 boys that are around him. I don't know if they knew. 
We don't have record of it. Now, maybe, but maybe not. And you kind of get the idea, Dad's making really clear here, whether it's been a secret, it certainly isn't now. Now, we read in Scripture, by the way, that God will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. And if that makes you freak out, listen to the next statement. It says, then each man's praise will be from God. I think that God's looking to catch me doing bad things. Well, what sport is that? It's catching me doing something good. Now, that's a little bit more of a long shot. And I look at this and I realize that he's calling him out on all of this. And when he does, he's going, Reuben, you're not my firstborn anymore. Now, we already knew that from the last chapter. But for what it's worth, listen to this in First Chronicles 5. In verse 1, it says, Now the sons of Reuben, the children of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the sons of Israel, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright, yet Judah prevailed over his brothers. And from that became a ruler. Literally, the word is Nagid, which means prince. It's the same word in Daniel when we read the Mashiach Nagid, Messiah the prince. About who there, Judah. This is what he says. Though Reuben should have had both the blessing and the birthright, well, instead, the firstborn went to Joseph, but actually the blessing went to Judah. That's kind of the way that works. Now, with that in mind, I have this guy, and he's a fringe guy, and he fails. And at the end of it all, he says, look, you shall not excel you're not getting anything. How'd you like that? Now, beloved, let me just say, praise God, we are not at Joseph's bed of judgment. We actually get to go to the throne of grace. But I don't want to go with any Reuben. How about you? Where God says, you know, you had so much promise. You know what's really sad? I bet we all know somebody that we just went, that person had so much promise, but they jumped instead into a world of instant pleasure though they had so much promise, and they bailed on the promises for something that was so less permanent. How sad. And you know what? You watch guys that you just look at and you go, you just wish you could beat sense into them, and you're like, why are you doing this? For a moment of lust. And we've never been in a culture where it's been easier to be anonymous and to be addicted to such sins as those, as this one. Well, that's boy number one. At this point, I'd get a little nervous to be boy number two. How about you? Well, he lumps two and three together. Simeon and Levi, they're brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. From chapter 34 of Genesis, by the way, where they killed the entire area of Shechem. For what it's worth, I mean, you know, these things are, I mean, obviously, we've read through a lot of this. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath because it's cruel. I will deliver them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Interesting, he lumps two boys together, and the reason is the two of them were in cahoots to slaughter the entire town. Now, this is their history here. And in it, what's interesting is he looks and he goes, look at your anger and your self-will is what's ruined it for you. Now, in the first case, it was like, look at your lust caused you to lose it. It was your lust. Your lust caused you to bail on the, the promises that I had for you. In the second case, notice the words that are used because there are also words that are just as awful and they're just as common. Verse 6, it says it, their anger and their self-will. That's what they're known for. These are guys with tempers. 
And these are guys that are so driven, but they're not driven on the things of the Lord. They've got their own things done. And if God can come along what they're doing, it's okay. But they're not going to ultimately submit. Now, they'll tell you they're submitted to God. They'll tell you they're submitted to the will of the Father. But in the end of it all, you'll never know that you're submitted. Listen, please. You'll never know what real submission is until you disagree. Because if I'm walking in the same direction as you, nobody has to submit to anything. But the moment there's a disagreement, somebody concedes. That's And Jesus was the perfect example in the garden when he said, Not my will, but yours be done. That's real submission. And understand, we could think we're doing so well, and yet be so driven by self-will and just go, God bless my self-will. Here he says, look, at as a result of that, you're going to be divided and scattered. Those are the terms he uses here. And I think, you know what? Anytime I'm driven by my own self-will, because I like it or not, of all the people that I look at in this blessing or cursing, these are the ones I most relate to in the old man. My old Jacob was a violent instrument of cruelty. That's, in matter of fact, that's a great term for where I came from. And I look at this, and I don't know about you, but when I look at this and I think, oh God, I know this. That man needs to be utterly slayed because that's the child of, that's the product of Jacob. That's not the product of Israel. And I want to be the product of Israel, not of Jacob here. And as I look at this, I think, man, is there still that anger? Is that still that self-will? Because the moment I jump into self-will, I am so scattered. And I'm so divided. The first three have now been officially disqualified from the right of the firstborn. And at this point, I'd be nervous to be Judah. Remember, that's the one who wound up impregnating his his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute. But before we get there, I want you to recognize, in the book of Joshua, where the land is scattered, Simeon never gets land of his own. His land is integrated with Judah. And he says here, by the way, I'm going to scatter you along. You're not going to have your own place. Because the moment you're governed by your own self-will and driven by it, you'll really never have your own personal walk with God because you'll be so busy doing your thing, trying to get God to come alongside it. And I look at that and I think, wow, it just scatters. And in Deuteronomy 33, where Moses is blessing the tribes, Simeon doesn't even appear. But then there's these other guys, Levi. And this to me is one of the most beautiful statements of grace. Because this is another guy that was just as cruel, that was just as furtive in killing these people. But yet, in, Le- in the book of Leviticus, or in the book of Exodus, I'm sorry, chapters 32, and um, we read, by the way, that that Moses has gone up and gotten the Ten Commandments, and on his way down, he hears the sound of dancing. And oh, Joshua, by the way, thinks it's actually war, which tells you how bad their singing was. And he goes, no, 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 actually, that's them singing. He goes, it sounds like people dying. But um, he comes down, and as he does, there they're all sort of naked dancing around this golden calf, and he is furious. And with that, he ultimately draws a line in the sand, and he says, all right, look at if you're going to stand with my God, the one that I just fellowshiped with on the mountain, I want you on this side with me. And the only people who do so are the tribe of Levi. And God says, that's what I was looking for. I'll tell you what, I will redeem you from what your father has said, and I'm going to make you a priest. And that's why I love the promise of Levi, because what happened is he went from being somebody that was a perpetrator to being somebody who's a priest. And the difference was where he really chose to stand when the line was drawn. Now, what about you? Where are you going to choose to stand today? We're going to go to the table of the Lord today. Where are you going to stand? 
Are you going to stand on the side that says, look at the whole world's getting drunk, I might as well too. The whole world's getting naked, I might as well too. The whole world has this set of standards. And over here where God says, and he just came down with the law. I mean, it's like, which side do I want to stand on? Well, this is the side where I fellowship with the Lord. And this is where I'm going to stand. It gets to the point, by the way, in this the same strength, by the way, by Numbers chapter 25, when Israel has then sort of integrated with the Moabites, which, by the way, are getting them now to worship their gods. And he says, clean the camp out of this. That it's Phinehas, who's the grandson of Aaron the priest, who will actually drive his javelin through a person because of the way that he's still in utter rebellion against the idea of actually seeking to be pure and separate from from that country. And God says, you know, he says, look at, I see your, I see how you took that same strength, that same thing and used it now for me. I mean, and there are some people, by the way, they are just so full on and they are so full on that given without Jesus, they're just going to be people that are going to kill everyone in their path one way or another. And those same people, when surrendered to Christ, become people that change the world. And I can't help but think who's right. Who wrote the book of Genesis? More than likely it was who? was Moses. Well, what tribe is Moses from? Moses is from this tribe, the tribe of Levi. And it's the tribe of Levi here that he says, cursed is their anger. And I think, wow, what would it be like to be like that? So on one side, I see the people that are, I see with Reuben, for instance, those that are just trading in the promise for passion, for wrong kind of passion. And then I see these people, Simeon and Levi, and they're spiteful and self-willed. And by the way, that will be in every church, but it'll be in every human being if we're not careful. And I don't want that. How about you? Moving next to Judah. Now I'm thinking, uh-oh. If I were Judah, bad news. And dad says, you're not going, and cursed is your anger, and you're, uh, don't let not even my soul enter your counsel. And I'm thinking, man, I've got it coming. And then it says, but by the way, Judah is one of the two people that gets five verses, Judah and Joseph. And it says, you are he whom your brother shall praise. And I think, how interesting is that? Now, by the way, Simeon, Shimon, means he has heard. And God says, let my, 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 let my soul not enter their counsel. I'm not going to hear you. Levi means attached. And he says, I will divide you. See how he's playing on the names? Judah's name means praise. And he says, you're the one whom your brother shall praise. He's handing over now that authority to his son. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah's a lion's whelp. That's a baby lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a mature or an older lion. It says actually an adult lion. And then as an older lion, as a lion, different words, different conjugations of it. Who shall rouse him? And of course, I I see this all of a sudden. Joseph, I'm sorry, Jacob looks and he looks at Judah and he sees something strange. He's like, you know what? I see you as this guy that just can't keep to himself. I see you guys as guys who can't stop killing people. I look at you and I see a a lion. That's kind of weird. I wonder what it would be like to be under such an influence of the Holy Spirit that you're just speaking stuff and you're like, whoa, I hope I understand that later because I'm not getting it now. Have you ever had those moments where you just knew the Lord was speaking through you and you're like, I'm just going to risk it and say it. And then someone goes, whoa, that was so the Lord. And you're like, well, good, because it was weird for me too. And and, and you look at this and he goes, okay, look at, and I see this line and I can't help but go. And remember, he says, I'm going to tell you these things. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the last days. Remember how he says that? Well, when I think last days, one of the first books I'm drawn to is the book of Revelation. And as I look at the book of Revelation, as I see this, this, this scroll sealed up with seven seals that no one is able to take, and it's the elder that says then, 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And, and again, I'm looking and I go, oh, that's all the way back in Genesis what's been promised. It's the lion from Judah that fulfills this. But it goes beyond that. Verse 10, notice what it says. The, shep- the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Can you say Shiloh? Shiloh means to rest like some of you may appear to be looking at the moment. And in it, by the way, there is a specific promise in this. I mean, up to this point, he looks and he goes, look at you're going to be victorious. That's what I see. I see you as a loved leader. You're someone your brothers will praise, and you're going to be somebody that, man, you're going to have your hand on the neck of your enemies is the idea that they're going to be bowing down to you. You will be victorious. And that's what he sees when he looks at Judah. Strange, because he didn't see Judah this way. But wait a minute. What happened in Judah's life after all of those things that he had done that were so evil? Well, he was the one that was willing to stand, if you remember, when Simeon was, when they went to bring Benjamin to Joseph, not knowing he was their brother. And he says, look it, if that man dies, you can kill me. Or if he doesn't come back, you can kill me. And then when Joseph, still not knowing who he is, went to take Benjamin for himself, he was the one who says, no, please, please take me. It was this man, Judah, who said, look it, take me instead. Which, of course, is so the voice of Jesus. Who said, though that person, according to what your law says, should die, or that person deserves it, take me instead. And, and, and that just all of a sudden propels him into this place of authority. He's going to be ruling the family, so to speak. But he says this in verse 10, the scepter. So you want to know what a scepter is? Scepter is a big, long thing that kind of has a bulb on the end of it all. You'll see it, by the way, when the queen, for instance, was inaugurated. She holds that in one hand and this other thing. In another. And it's like this thing that just speaks about authority. It's that scepter is really, really important because that's the same scepter for which a king then establishes whether he feels safe or not. If you were to walk in a room unannounced and that king just pulled that scepter back, you were killed. He, I mean, he could have a nervous twitch. You're still dead. Because the idea of it is, is when he holds out that scepter, that's saying, I trust you. I feel safe around you. You are, you are with me. I'm, I'm opening myself to you. But if he pulls it back... You're in trouble. Does anyone know there's a book specifically that revolves around that concept? Does anyone know which book in the Bible? Esther. If you remember in Esther, she says, oh, well, if I go there and he does and he refuses, and he pulls back that scepter. I'm a dead. But if he with, if he holds it out, well, then I know that he's welcoming me. Did you get that? That term, by the way, would be a scepter of righteousness. In other words, you are right with me. So I'm offering that because you're right with me and I welcome you. Does that make sense? Well, for those of you who actually can flip in a Bible really quick, will you flip to Psalm 45, please? This is what it says in chapter 45, speaking about the Messiah. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Did you get that? That my King, Jesus the Christ, my King perpetually dwells in a state where his scepter is extended because he's always willing to welcome me. Praise God, I have such a king who has such a scepter. Do you know what I'm saying? Now that scepter, by the way, that recommends, that, that actually infers two things. One is the power to welcome or the power to kill. Do you get that? That is important because 
up to a specific point. Here's the promise. There will be a day when that scepter will be removed. That's what he says. That scepter shall not depart until. Which means when that day comes, then the scepter will depart. Do you get that? When the scepter departs, I will no longer have the authority to welcome you or, more importantly, to kill. Interesting, because though after this point, Israel will go into the land, the north will be taken captive by Assyria, and for what it's worth, 721, 722 B.C., the south will be taken captive by Babylon in 586 B.C., and in both of the cases, when they're taken captive, they will still have the right to kill their own. Interesting. They could actually stone their own at, whether that be in Babylon, whether that be in Nineveh, they still have, or any place else, by the way, uh, in Assyria, they still have the right to kill their own. They give them a bitter right of self-government. They've always had the right to do that until something strange happens. So, because we it can't, we can't remove that. We always have to have the ability to perform capital punishment because if we don't, then the scepter is departed. We no longer have the right. And the promise is that there's going to be a day when this Shiloh comes, which, by the way, traditionally has always been, that's the Messiah, the one who's going to bring rest for his people. So with that in mind, because the word means rest, or literally to bring rest, the one who brings rest. So there's somebody coming, and when he comes, I'm going to lose that right. Now, up to that point, we're going, well, cool, he hasn't shown up yet, so we're okay. Are you following me on this? Does this sort of make sense? Well, here's the problem. In the area of Judah, more specifically, I should say in Judah and Benjamin, in the area of, of Jerusalem, that there was always sort of some problems with leaders there after Herod the Great dies. I mean, there's a son that comes in and he's just a big punk thing, Archelaus. He doesn't last for very long, so they deport him and they actually send him to the middle of Turkey. And with that, they keep trying to get other guys in and out and in and out and in and out. As a matter of fact, one of them, the most famous we know, is Pontius Pilate, who, by the way, only lasts for about 10 years himself. I mean, there isn't a lot of guys that last very long. But in between all of that time, each guy is trying to come into the most explosive, sort of combustible group of people to try to kind of get them to mellow out and try to make it look like you're ruling them. Now, you can understand that. Well, in that time, there is a guy, and he's easy for me to remember, coming from Chicago, and his name is Caponius. You know, like Al Caponius. And he comes in, and he comes in in 7 A.D., and when he comes in in 7 AD, he's going to show them he is boss of the people. Well, one of the things he had done, by the way, is between him and Valerius Grass, is that he had actually been responsible for who's actually maneuvering as high priest, the Kohen Gadol. And it's actually in 6 BC that the guy who takes the position of high priest is Annas. Perhaps you're familiar, if you remember him, he's the guy that we read Annas and Caiaphas that are actually sort of running things. And by the way, Annas is a lot like the godfather among the high priests. He actually has five of his own sons, a grandson and a step and a son by marriage, which by the way is Caiaphas, that he sort of positions into that role of high priest, but he's still calling the shots from back here. That's why the Bible will say, although you can only have one high priest, the Bible will say, well, that guy's a high priest and that guy's a high priest. Caiaphas was ruling. He's the guy who's with his face on a stamp, but Annas, Annas was really pulling the strings. Well, while he's there, Annas is there, what happens is Caponius comes in and he removes the right of capital punishment, 7 AD. And as he removes the right of capital punishment, Annas runs through the streets and it becomes the beginning of the atheist movement among the Jewish people because he says, the scepter has departed from Israel, God's word has failed. Did you get that? Well, listen, listen, listen. Does anyone know what year Jesus was born? Any idea? 
I mean, there was no zero, by the way. Remember, there's like a BC and an AD. There isn't like a zero. Here's the problem. Herod the Great died in 2 BC. Well, actually 4 BC. And if Herod the Great died in that period of time, Jesus had to live before that time. Because remember, he was the one that tweaked Herod so bad that Herod killed all the children of Bethlehem, two years old and younger. So he kind of had to be there before that point for that to happen. Are you with me so far? So do the math for a second, because in the Gospel of Luke, and this is where I I just love this stuff, because we're inspecting, we're only using Scripture to define Scripture, right? Well, God makes mention of Jesus' birth, matter of fact, in two books, Matthew and Luke, and then really everything else takes place after 30 when he sort of shows up again, except for one event, and it's only in the Gospel of Luke. Does anyone know how old Jesus is? Yeah, well, that's when he kind of shows back up at roughly 30. 12, excellent. He's 12 years old. Now he's 12 years old, and some of you remember the situation. Jesus comes over for Passover, and he's left there, and his parents leave, and they forget. Well, they look around, and they're like, I thought you had him. Well, I thought you had him. I would not want to be around for that particular argument. We lost God. Come on. You know what I mean? How rough that would be. And they go back, and they find him in the temple, speaking with the teachers of the law. And he goes, you should know I was about my father's business, which would be really rough to be Joseph at that moment, right? I mean, I mean, you don't want to go, oh, I'm your dad, because you really look like a negligent parent to have left him in the first place, right? So anyway, the reason I say that is, do the math for a second. Jesus is 12. Now, if he was born about 4 BC, 4 or 5 BC, that means that Jesus would be, right at about 6 BC, or the beginning of 7 BC, he would be... 12 years old. Now the question is, why does God make special mention that he's 12? I mean, God doesn't mince words. Why, I mean, why would he add that? Because two things. One is that gives me a timestamp of when this event happened. But a second is, he's a Jewish boy and he's 12. What happens to a Jewish boy when he's 12? He has bar mitzvah. Now, to this day, what that means is my boy has become a man. Literally, the idea is he's responsible for his actions. So what they do is he reads the Torah for the first time. He is, listen, presented to the people. He reads the book of Leviticus in the Hebrew, and then they throw candy at him. Sounds like a pretty cool thing, actually. I mean, to this day, it's a really good time to go watch and go to the Wailing Wall because they throw candy, and sometimes they don't throw it well. Anyways, but here's the point. God said that there's going to be a day when Shiloh comes. He is presented. And when that day comes, expect after that, that the scepter will depart. And God made special mention that that happened. Did you see how that worked out? So Jesus shows up. He shows up and it's so profound that his parents leave and he's still there. God's like, look at how long does he have to be here for you to know I presented him. Then they come and they take him back. Then Capona shows up and says, All right, you guys, you can't kill each other anymore. That's my job. And, and God says, look at boom, just like I promised. By the way, over a thousand years, 1,500 years before that here, Jacob's looking, and this is a statement he makes. Does he even know what he's saying? But this is how it played out. Isn't that profound? And then he says this, To him shall be the obedience of the people, I just love this sta- these statements that he makes here. <laughs> now, a scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from his feet, until Shiloh comes. To him will be the obedience of the people, so to him the people will have to obey. 
Now, there's a responsibility of the leader, but it's so far beyond the fact that, look, you're going to be ruling your family, boy. This is also that we know that the entire world, that there's only one name for which every knee is going to bow and that every tongue is going to confess that name is Lord. And that boy comes from the tribe of Judah and we know him as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And this is something now, if you think about it, over 3,000 years ago that we're seeing today. As a matter of fact, look at the next statements because there's another statement in here that's just so beautiful as we look at this. He says this. He says that in verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his his garments in the wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. What I get to the end of this And I realize it tells us, by the way, in chapter, in verse 8, by the way, notice it says, your father's children will bow down before you. That tells me where he's going to be in this. To him, all the nations will be assembled. To him, all the people shall be to the obedience under under him. And then it says, binding his donkey. Now, I can't help but go to Zechariah 9.9, where God promised that the king would come on a donkey. The vine, for what it's worth, he says, is his own people. Uh, For the sake of time, Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 4. And then Isaiah 5, verse 7 when he speaks about the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And he looks at this and I say, look at, he's giving promises here and he says, to this your brother shall praise. Do you realize to this day we just did that? We didn't praise the name of Zebulun. We didn't praise somebody that came from Levi. We praised the lion of the tribe of Judah. And God says, look at, over 3,000 years ago I promised this and so it has come to pass. Well, we better move on. Some of these are a lot quicker. Zebulun, for instance, shall be a haven by the sea. He shall become a haven for the ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. By the way, Zebulun means inhabits. Kind of an interesting name because what he says is you're going to inhabit and people are going to inhabit. You're going to actually. Now, he never really gets the land he should have. So what happens is Asher kind of gets the coastland, but he gets right up to where, where Tyre and Sidon is and sort of he's in the area of Lebanon today. Um, for what that's worth. By the way, interesting, he's praised in the song of Deborah, Judges 5. And by the way, he does get the area, Zebulun, we know the area of Zebulun and the area of Naphtali as the area, of course, of Galilee to this day uh, with them. So, Issachar, a strong donkey. And boy, I don't like the King James on this. And I'm, anyway, by this point, there's a lot of sons that have kind of gotten the rough end of it. Now, Judah's been the only one so far that's gotten the positive. Zebulun, by the way, he says, by the way, you'll actually be a place where ships can come and find rest. And by the way, might I just say, as I look at this, some of these guys, I'm like, okay, this guy is just full of passion and look at where I got him. These guys are all full of self-will and anger and look at where that got them. This guy, by the way, well, he seems to be the guy that God's now making as a leader as he sought to make himself in surrender. I'll be instead of. And I love that. Uh, It's interesting because the firstborn, he was like, I'll be instead of the father. This guy says, I'll be instead of the sinner. Do you see the difference? And he goes, that's the kind of guy I'm looking for as a leader. Not the guy that wants to be instead of the father, but the guy that wants to be instead of the sinner that will go to the Lord with those sins. And then I look at the next one. He's like, you know what? And then there's the, well, there's the Mr. Hospitable. And you know what I love about that? In every church, God raises up people like that, that are basically a Zebulun. They're just people that, and by the way, the two words that I love here, the first word is the word haven. Did you notice? Shall dwell by the haven of the sea. It's like, that's just a place where people can go and just find comfort. Do you know anybody like that? That when it's a rough day, you just feel like you could show up at the house and you could just find comfort and get love. Well, there's a Zebulun. And may God raise up a Zebulun in each of us, if that makes sense. 
A place where the ship, man, when you just feel like you've been wandering and been tossed about by the waves of the sea, that there's just some place you can go and just dock for a little bit. Oh, God, make us so. Issachar, strong donkey. And it says, lying down between two burdens. This guy, by the way, is going to get the valley of Jezreel. And by the way, it's a beautiful valley, very, very lush. But look at what it says. He saw that the rest was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed on his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. How would you like to get that blessing? What a blessing that is. Interesting. Issachar means wages. In other words, your paycheck. And look at how he plays off the name. Now, this is what happened. Is that when he starts speaking about Issachar, he says, look, here's, here's the guy that he got this beautiful area and it's so lush and it's so green and it's so rich that the thing went, well, might as well just take it easy then. And he wound up taking it easy so bad that he wound up becoming a slave instead of a guy that actually could have been somebody that blessed others. And by the way, that is in a place like this it is so easy to become an Issachar where you think that you're poor because you haven't eaten in three hours and you're starving. You know, you're freezing because, well, it's well, well above, you know, freezing, literally, but you're just cold. And, you know, and the moment you shiver, you probably think you're going to die of hypothermia. And it's like, because this is where we're so used to being, to be honest, in Issachar, where we really have it so good. We're like, I might as well just kick back and rest now and sit on my laurels. And God says, look, you know, those kind of people become slaves. He says, you know, it's like a little folding of the hands, a little settling down to rest. And poverty comes upon you like an arm man, like a prowler. That's what scripture says. You know, the problem is that could be your faith too. You could have had some great encounter with the Lord. Some really great things were happening. And then you decided, I'll just take it easy now. Now, I'm not trying to make it about works. I'm just saying, look at any relationship worth having is one worth investing in. Does that make sense? I mean, I'd hate to think that my relationship with Jesus, he's the only one doing the pursuing. I mean, that just, that would make me feel, I think, there should be nobody worth pursuing more. No one worth celebrating more. Well, then we get to the, to the one that's probably the most intense. So, okay, do I want to be a slave? Of course I don't want to be a slave or a strong donkey for that matter. A haven? Sure, I would love to be such. Dan. Dan shall judge his people. By the way, Dan means judge. As one of the tribes of Israel, Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper by the path, bites the horse's heels so that the rider shall fall backward. And I think, wow, this is definitely the worst of them. I mean, you know, there are others where it's like, look at, I'm not going to give you anything. And I'm like, well, bummer. But this one, it's like, you're a serpent. I mean, you are, you shall judge. And interesting, because if you think of the judges from the book of Judges, who's the most famous of all the judges? Samson. What tribe is he from? He's from the tribe of Dan, for what it's worth. By the way, um, the one heavy thing about this, by the way, if you remember, there are 12 tribes. And in the book of Revelation 7, how they're all broken up for these evangelists, the one tribe that doesn't show up is Dan. So, I mean, that's kind of a serious thing, because then I start looking and I go, well, let me just chase things. When I look at the marching orders in Numbers 10, when they all sort of marched from one place to another, do you know who was at the farthest back in the back of the bus? It was Dan. And Joshua 19, when they actually got the land, who's the last to show up to get anything? It's Dan. And they get a land that they don't like so much, they leave it to go to another place and they kill a bunch of innocent people just so they can take their land. That's Dan. They go, well, is that really it? Well, wait a minute, there's more. Because by the time I get to the book of Judges, it's Dan that introduces idolatry into Israel. And I think, wow, and that God has no interest in your divided love. By the time I get to First Chronicles 2 through 10, Dan's not going to be mentioned. To this day, you can go to the north. There's an area called Tel Dan in Israel. 
And you can see where that, oh, well, that's right. Do you remember back, by the way, in 1 Kings 12, after the kingdom divides, some of you aren't familiar with all of this territory, forgive me, but for those of you who are, I just want to kind of pepper it. There were two golden calves that were built in the northern kingdom, one down in the area of Bethel and one in the area of Dan. Interesting, because by the time of Jehu, by the way, and that's, by the way, 2 Kings 10, that northern one's still there. Southern one, by the way, it all fallen apart, but the northern one, still there. And I look at that and I just think, man, Dan was just always somebody that was just so full of idolatry. As a matter of fact, listen to this in Amos chapter 8, verse 14. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria who say, as your God lives, O Dan, and by the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise up again. Now, the God they're speaking of is not the living God. The God of Dan was this golden calf. And by the way, can I just say it? In the simplest sense, all a golden calf is, is leaving God for the tangible. And every one of us has it in us if we're not careful. I just, you know what? I know God's there is my love, but I got to have someone I can touch and hear and feel. I know God's there is my comfort, but I got to have this instead. I know God's there is my security, but I got to have this in place. And God says, you are trading me in, Dan. So should it surprise me that Dan gets this? However, might I just say this? In Ezekiel chapter 48, when God speaks about the land to be given at the end, Dan will be the first in line. So God does have a restoration for him. Okay, last few. And I know this has been technical, but in the end of it all, I really, for instance, want to be, is there a, heart of, is there a part of me that's really a backbiter that's just full of the tangible? Like Dan. Because you know what? I don't want to be one of those pastors I don't think any of those guys have ever wanted to, who, who so disgraces the name of Christ that the best thing he could be is a warning. Does that, does that make sense? I mean, either you're going to be an example or a warning. I like the example thing. And Dan, by the way, was a warning. Reuben was a warning. Levi was a warning. Simeon was a warning. And I look at this and I think, God, please don't let me be this kind of guy. Gad, by the way, well, it says a troop, that's what his name means, shall tramp upon him, but he shall overcome or triumph at last. And by the way, it's interesting because he'll be one of those guys settling on the wrong side of the Jordan. Uh, and for what it's worth, he'll be the first to fall as a result of that, but he will overcome. So he's overcome and overcomer. Bread from Asher shall be rich. Asher means happy or enriched. So see how he plays on it. The bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. I don't know as a guy how I'd feel about my dad saying you'll yield royal dainties. But I do realize something. It's Asher that gets the area of Tyre and Sidon, and that's the area that helps give all of the things that are necessary to help build the temple that Solomon will build. And God is actually promising that. I see that here. But by the way, there's end times on the, all over all of this. Last couple. Naphtali is a deer let loose. Naphtali means wrestlings. So you get the idea of a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. So what is he? He's a, and by the way, for what it's worth, I remember how Gad, it says that, you know, he shall sort of triumph at last, but it would kind of come about, you know, kind of have this thing where he'll be kind of overcome and overcome. Interesting, to this day, we'll say to Gad about. And to Gad about kind of means to kind of wander aimlessly. Well, Naphtali is a deer let loose, and he's one really just sort of imagine this sort of free, set free thing, and it's just all so free. But he also uses beautiful words, so he's fluent, so he's free and fluent. And I think, well, Barak is actually from this. Uh, and then, but I think, well, Naphtali, that's the area of Capernaum where Jesus will settle. And it'll be from there, by the way, that the most profound teachings that have ever come will be taught. And Jesus will be the one teaching them. And it'll be from the area of Naphtali. 
for what it's worth. And by the way, for that's worth, it's Matthew 4, 13 through 16. You'll see that. And then our last one. Now look at, before I even get to Joseph and to bring this in, and again, I, I know this has been technical, but I look at this and I think, all right, God, am I such a person, like Asher, by the way, who is a great giver? That's what it says here. He's somebody that shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. He'll be somebody that will actually be blessing kings. Oh, I'd love to be such a person. Which is interesting because there were other brothers that were in the past who had such potential and instead they failed. Would I rather be an Asher? And there's, well, is there a season in my life that's been like God where I feel like it's been so overwhelmed, but then in the end, God says, I want to promise you, you are going to get over this. And why don't I just say that God has a word for each of us in that because maybe the season you're in right now is a season much more like Issachar where you've kind of gotten lazy and now you feel like you're all about burdened. Maybe the season you're in right now, to be honest, is like Gad, where you feel like you've been overwhelmed by whatever the thing is. It's a circumstance or whatever. It wasn't even in laziness. It's just that something just came against you and it got the best of you. Look, God is promising you that if you belong to him, you will triumph at last. It doesn't say you'll triumph the moment you hit that, t- that test. Or you'll triumph the moment you get into that battle, but you will triumph at last. And I guarantee you, when you do, you'll finally say, at last, finally I triumph, but you will. And maybe just the Lord wants to tell you that message today, that look at, you're in a Gad season. Maybe you're in an Asher season, where God has really blessed you abundantly. Well, then be a blessing. Maybe you're in a Naphtali season where you know what it's like to be let loose. And as a result of that, you start... I mean, I would imagine having been in places where I felt like I've been overcome like Gad, it seems like Naphtali is the natural place for me to go after that, which is I've been so let loose now that I just want to use beautiful words and tell God about it. And I want to tell you about it. Well, be then a Naphtali if God be putting you in that. I love the fact that it ends, well, with Joseph and then Benjamin. Joseph, by the way, is a fruitful bough. The other one who gets the most right up. A fruitful bough by the well. His branches run over the wall. By the way, when I think of a wall, does anyone think in Old Testament about a wall? Where do you go with that? There's two places I think of. What's that? Jericho. Excellent. A wall. Interesting. Do you know who takes us over that wall? Who takes us through that wall? Joshua. What tribe is he from? He's from Joseph. He's from the tribe of Ephraim. And I believe that it's, being, it's said right here. The anchors have, I'm sorry, the archers have grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. Doesn't that sound like that battle? But his bow remained in strength, and his arms and his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of, of Jacob. For there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your fathers who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breast and of the womb, blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. You'll be even more blessed than I've been. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph. And you see now how he's bestowing upon him a lot of the goods and upon that crown of the head of him who is separate from his brothers. Okay, the last of them. And by the way, for what it's worth, in Ezekiel, in, if, um, yeah, it just, it just says, by the way, in Ezekiel forty-seven thirteen that Joseph will have two portions in the millennial reign. Benjamin, a ravenous wolf. Joseph means fruitful. Benjamin, by the way, means son of my right hand. And we see words like devour and divide. It's a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he shall devour his prey. And at night, he shall divide the spoil. Would you like that? Let me ask you, if that was what your dad gave you as a blessing, would you think that's a good one? Well, what I kind of get out of that is he's a wild warrior. Interesting, because from this point on, 
I see that it's like in First Chronicles 8.14 that there were mighty men of valor, there were archers. They had sons and grandsons, all mighty men, and they were from the sons of Benjamin. In First Chronicles 12.2, with bows using both the right hand and the left hand, they can hurl stones, by the way, and shoot arrows, and they were of Benjamin. Second Chronicles 14.8, Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears. That's what they did, shields and spears. From Benjamin, 280,000 men who carried shields and drew bows, and all of them were mighty men of of valor. And I look at all of these things and I go, okay, wait a minute, Ehud and Saul and these other men who were from this, but I think, wait a minute, because by the time I get to Judges, there's probably the sickest story in all of the Old Testament, and it happens because somebody actually, instead of going to a pagan town, decides to go into the area of Benjamin, and it's like a scene from Sodom and Gomorrah, and it's like, look at I warned you, Benjamin's going to be a ravenous wolf. Now, the good news is, is that did God bail on the tribe of Benjamin? He couldn't have bailed on the tribe of Benjamin because in the New Testament, one of the guys that are mentioned is, well, the most prolific is Saul of Tarsus. And he says, how did is God bailed in the book of Romans? Has God bailed on, on, on the, the Jewish people? Of course not. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. So he knows. Now, I'd say he was a pretty fierce guy, but he just wasn't shooting arrows into people or slinging stones into innocent victims or into people that he was standing up for the Lord and he was slaying giants and they were just different giants. Giants against the things of the people of God. Now, let me say, as we wrap this up now, ultimately what will happen at the end of all of this then is dad's going to die. Take a look at it with me. So now we've gotten to this point and it says in verse 29, then he charged them and said to them, I'm gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the fields of Ephron the Hittite as a possession for a burial place. So there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife, and there I buried Leah. Not Rachel, by the way, the wife he said he loved, because she, will, of course, is buried just outside of Bethlehem. The field and the cave which there were purchased by the son of Chet. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Which means that if you were these sons, these were the last words you heard your dad say, and then you watched him die in front of you. How profound a moment would that be? That the last thing he said was, you're a wolf. You're an ass. That's what he says, a strong donkey. If your passion hadn't gotten the best of you, where would you be? If your anger and your self-will hadn't gotten the best of you, where would you be? If you weren't so lazy, where would you be? I look at that and I go, oh God, please don't let me be any of that. But then on the other side of that, look at what I have. Well, you sought to stand in the way, in the, in the line of others, in the line of sinners. And you know what? I'm going to give you authority. You're like a deer let loose using beautiful words. Okay, you're in the middle of a battle, but you will overcome it. You're fruitful. Fruitful over a wall, fruitful. Although the battle's great in your fruitfulness, and they'll shoot at you and try to shut you down, you are already fruitful. As a matter of fact, the battle shows your fruitfulness. And I like to hear that. You're a haven place of rest for others. Oh, they're wandering around. You'll be the place they can find rest. And I look at all of this and I think, Lord, 
Could God, could you have made it any more clear to these boys? His dad then dies in front of you. No, no place for, you know, well, wait a minute. What if I had said, what if I had done? And there's no place to change it now. Now, look at the reason I say that is, is that praise God for the grace of Christ. And let me tell you the biggest difference as we bring this to close. The Bible says that the moment you give your life to Christ, there's a foundation that was laid. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid but that one. So there's your foundation. And from that foundation, you can choose to build now. And you can choose to build with haywood and stubble, or you can choose to, to build with gold, silver, or precious stones. Those are your options. So my foundation is laid. And as my foundation is laid, it's solid and secure and immovable. That's evident. And as it's solid, secure, and immovable, now I have a choice to build. Now listen to this. Listen to the difference between the deathbed of Jacob and the beauty of Jesus Christ and the Bema seat, the, the, the place that we call the mercy seat. I can't change that foundation. It's the only foundation I'm going to get. And praise God, it's the only one I need. And it's the only one that I should want. He goes, I'm not even going to let you lay foundation. I'll take care of that, but I'm going to let you build. So I get to choose. Gold. Well, gold's going to be refined. Silver, that's refined, but I'm, but I'm going to use it. These are precious things. God speaks of gold, or gold like faith, things of great faith. And so I'm going to trust God. And boom, all of a sudden a pillar gets laid. All right, Lord, I have the very best intentions. And Lord, I want to see the world change. Use me. Boom, another pillar gets laid. Moments of worship and abject devotion. And it starts to get decorated with precious stones. And then I get distracted. Now, I know it probably doesn't happen to you. It's just me. But, and so in, the, in my distraction now, you know, now I get a little bit selfish or I get a little proud or I get a little bit distracted or I get a little bit concerned. I take my eyes off the Lord and I'm looking at the waves. And all of a sudden, it isn't like God, listen, 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 listen. It isn't like God ever pulls any of this away. He just says, well, now you add a little hay and you add a little wood and you add a little stubble, which is, in other words, kindling, right? I mean, so now all of a sudden you've got this stuff in there. So now I've got this thing when it's got like pillars and it's got some beautiful stones and then there's some hay. And then there's, you know, and you get the idea, right? And then not only is there that, but then there's, you know, there's some wood. And then there's some just, you know, some briquettes. Some charcoal. Easy light. And then the floor gets laid. And praise the Lord, we put the walls up so nobody can see. But we know that that means there's some places on the house that are a little shaky because it should have been something better. <gasps> It's a new day. It's a new season. Ah, Lord, here I am. I give you my heart. And I'm not just saying it because it's in the song. And boom, and boom, another pillar gets laid. And another pillar gets laid. And in that, then there's some more precious stones of praise and adoration and abject surrender. And in all of that, then there's some more hay and stubble because, oh, that person offended me. And I'm going to think about that for a while. And no, I'm not going to get back at them, but I'm going to think about it in my head. And ooh, there's some more haywood and stubble. Well, that's just like, and by the, by the third layer, I'm kind of thinking, well, that's just like insulation, right? You know? And so it all gets laid on. So now I've got this big, beautiful thing. And I'm like, and God takes a look as the building inspector of eternity. And he kind of takes a look at it. But he doesn't just look and go, you know, the, your thing's kind of danky. Kind of like the leaning tower of Pisa. He doesn't do that. It says everything will be tested by fire. Did you get that? Now, if all I had, if all I had was hay, wood, and stubble, I wouldn't even have a foundation. But instead, I have these pillars. I have their gold, their silver, these precious stones. And then I've got a lot of flammable material. 
listen, please listen. So the fire of the Lord goes, whoosh. Now what happens? What happens to the wood? What happens to it? What happens to the hay? What happens to the stubble? What happens to the gold? It purifies. What happens to the silver? It purifies. What happens to the precious stones? They become more precious. So all of a sudden, then God goes, What's left? Only the gold and the silver and the precious stones. It's all that's left. Now that's the grace of God. Because I tend to think that the moment I kind of put a little wood in it, God replaced the pillar with it. You ever get that? Oh, this whole thing's for naught. Now look at how I blew it. God says, no, 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 no. I'm a fire and an all-consuming fire and I will burn away the dross and I will burn away the chaff and then... And then God says, so this is what you offer me. And I'm like, it looked so much bigger before, but it was full of fluff. And you ever wonder how much is really going to be on that plate when we're done? And it will not be any great work you've done for God. It'll only be what you've done, well, what he's done through you. And the good news is, is that you're not at the foot of the bed of your father yet. But we are going to stand before the throne. And when you stand before the throne, all of my Reuben, all of my Simeon, Levi scattered 48 cities of refuge, but they'll get no land. He was promised that. Simeon will never get land. They'll just be part of the Judah and then just sort of dissipated. But I didn't. The question is, how much do I want on my plate when I'm done? What do I want laid out? Could you imagine if when God did it? Sometimes I've learned he does it during the building project. You know what I mean? He'll send a trial that will, by the way, he says that, that trials will come like fire trials that your faith of greater value than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, would be proven genuine. So my faith gets a little off and God sends a trial and I'm like, oh, I'm so overwhelmed. I just feel like, wait a minute. Oh, I will overcome. You promised me that. It, it, it'll, it'll happen in time. And God's like, look at I'm going to burn it away before you even get a chance to build the next layer. Because to be honest, this just doesn't belong. You don't need this in your house for the rest of your life. And it'd be the same thing. We'd fight him for and ask him why and go, God, I don't get it. And God says, you will get it. Well, look at this. We go to, to prayer and then we go to the table of the Lord. Can we ask God, can you burn away all of my hay, my wood and my stubble in a way that doesn't just shatter everything in my life? Well, if all of my life is about him, it shouldn't shatter any of it. And in that, that God would take us today and de-Rubinize us, de-Simeonize us, certainly de-Dan us, that we could be people that say, look at God, if, if I'm chasing after something in my passion that doesn't belong, would you just change my passion to the permanent? If I'm somebody that's so caught up in my, in, you know, and by the way, I find that people tend to travel in groups that are instruments of cruelty. I've learned they're divisive. And that's what he says. I'm going to divide you. They just come in. They come to divide. And there's an interesting because they're unified in dividing others. I've learned this. And, and you kind of get that. And it's like, God, then don't let that. Don't let me have a divisive heart. Don't let me have that. Don't let me be an instrument of cruelty. Don't let me be something so driven by self-will. 
Don't let me be somebody that's so caught up in me. Don't let me be somebody that's so busy trying to replace you, Father, to stand in your way, stand in your light, instead of being willing to stand in the line of the sinner for you, like Judah. So let's just pray for a moment. And we're going to get quiet before the Lord, all right? Because I want us to go to the table of the Lord with a genuineness. And if you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, this table's for you. And as we do so, may the Lord just, can he just speak words of comfort right now? Saying, look at, I'm at work in your life. Let's take that moment and then we'll pray. Lord, I just pray that you would do a work in our lives right now. I mean, in this chapter that just seems so technical and certainly given over to so much prophecy, and yet, Lord, we see the very practical as as the Reuben in me needs to die. And so, Lord, please, at least this Reuben. Lord, let let me never stand in your light, but rather, Lord, let me... Let me stand in the line of the sinner for you and with you. And, and Lord, I just love you. And please let me be somebody that isn't given over to, to any passion but you. Lord, let me not be in any way an instrument of cruelty. Let me be somebody that's not given over to anger and self-will. May I be somebody who instead is given over to selflessness. Like Judah that I would love the stranger and be a haven like Zebulun. Lord, keep me from being lazy like Issachar that ultimately found himself a slave when he started out so well. Remove from me, Lord, anything that's like Dan here that would substitute you for the tangible. Lord, I pray for every person who's in the Gad season where they feel like they've just been overwhelmed by whatever it is that tramps upon them. Remind them again, and may it be today that they'd be able to triumph at last. And Lord, as that battle is overcome, Lord, show us how you... And I see the process here, Lord, from the false passions and the self-wills to the surrender of Judah, to being a haven and finding a haven, to in that the danger of not being lazy, because being lazy, I start surrendering to the tangible like Dan, but instead in that battle overcoming and in overcoming, having a wealth to share even with the royals. And being a dear let loose, using beautiful words. And being fruitful, like Joseph. I pray for that with each of us. I pray, Lord, that we would, we would be able to withstand every challenge. And we would cling to you. Today, Lord, build upon these. We give you, as the architect of our reinvention, right to build upon these things, upon your foundation of you the way you desire, and in doing so, be glorified. So I praise you, and I ask even now, Lord, as these boys now will have to deal with a dead dad, and these being his final words, may it be when I stand before your throne of grace, may it already have been dealt with and burned away the, the, the things that don't belong in this family. 
that you would build a family here that is absolutely glorious in you. Jesus, we recognize that you died on the cross for us, paying for all of our sins. And because of that, all of that can be just burnable haywood and stubble. Thank you for being the all-consuming fire. That you would burn away all that stuff. God, in that, that there's nothing that keeps you from us but rather what keeps us from you. And so, Lord, just let us be people who are really given over and surrender. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for my sins, for raising again on the third day and offering me a brand new life for which you continue to perpetually make new. Thank you for that. And now, Lord, as we prepare to go to your table, may we celebrate together a God who makes us new. Jesus, you are Lord the lion of the tribe of Judah. You are from everlasting to everlasting. Thank you that your scepter is a scepter of righteousness perpetually. Here we are, we're yours. We come to your table, Jesus, to celebrate you in your name. Amen.